News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. How much money do you have left just before a paycheck these days? According to the latest Ipsos poll, we don't have much. In fact, 22% of the Canadians they surveyed said they are, quote, completely out of money. And they don't have anything else to pay for an increase in household necessities. That seems to be the reality for so many Canadians right now. Let's break down these latest poll results with Siam Sethi with Ipsos Public Affairs. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, so these kind of results, it seems to be where we are at, but some of these are pretty scary. What is the financial picture for Canadians like right now? Uh, Simi, I wish I was uh, bringing you a happier picture, but I'm not. As as you just said, 22% of Canadians are completely out of money, meaning that there is no way they can pay more for household necessities. Another 32%, that's one in every three feel that in order to afford the rising cost of the bare necessities, food, clothing, transport, shelter, they would have to make major changes to how they spend in order to be able to pay for those increased prices. And when I add these up, that's 54% of Canadians up five points in just the last two months. 54% of Canadians say that they're struggling even to stay afloat to manage the basic necessities of their household. Basically, the impact on the pocketbook is insurmountable. What about the um, household essentials, like things like buying groceries, feeding their household? What do they say about that? Well, I'm glad you asked because, you know, housing, transport, food, these are the things that we need. And I'm not even talking about things that people want. And we've, we've uh, you know, asked about those too. But speaking of the things people need, 68% are concerned that interest rates are rising quicker than they can adjust, which means that all of their money, any spare reserves that they had, is going towards you know, servicing their debt. And that means that people don't have enough money to even feed their families. Over half, 52% say that they might not have enough money to put food on the table. Pretty consistent since last quarter, not changed. 56% remain concerned that they won't be able to afford gasoline. Wow, that is, those are really rough numbers there. Was it the same, like, did you check regionally? What was it like by province? Well, I can tell you that uh, from east to west, Canadians are feeling the pinch. Uh, There aren't, you know, much differences that we see across indicators um, when we look at different provinces. But some groups are uh, you know, better equipped to weather the storm than uh, others. But that does not depend on where you are. It depends on who you are. Um, and we see that, you know, if you're a parent, uh, if you have the more kids you have in the family, the more mouths to feed, the harder it gets. Lower income Canadians, younger age groups, these are the people who don't have, you know, those rainy day reserves to tap into. They have literally no safety net left to fall back on. And the gender gap is very, very evident as well. Any indicator that we pick up, there is at least 10 to 20 percentage point gap between, you know, uh, women's struggle in comparison to men's struggle, be it, you know, just struggling to beat inflation, putting food on the table, buying gas. The disparity between men and women is so palpable and worrisome. 
And what about uh, when we talk about the concern over interest rates that you mentioned there, that Canadians are concerned that interest rates will rise faster than they can adjust, which provinces were the most worried about that? Well, in terms of the interest rates, we we see that Atlantic Canada, um, you know, 75% of Atlantic Canadians are are worried that this will happen. In Ontario, the number is 73%. Um, Alberta, British Columbia, again, uh, it's more than 7 in 10. And it's, it's slightly lesser in Quebec and Saskatchewan, Manitoba, but it's still over half even in those provinces. So the concerns are, uh, you know, among the majority across mm. Canada. And so well, how is this going to impact people down the road? Like, are they looking ahead, perhaps, at the things that they might not be able to spend money on? Well, the outlook is pretty bleak. Our our prime minister has warned of a tough year ahead. Macroeconomics, uh, everything is telling us that basically the aftershocks are going to impact us for the time to come. The wealth is eroding. The damage has been done. 81% of people feel that, you know, the rising prices will continue to make things less affordable for them. But yes, uh, the struggle continues and the consumer sentiment is down. It's firmly in the negative. So it is, it is a bleak environment right now. Well, thanks so much for talking to us about it this morning. We appreciate that. Thanks for having me. Asayam Sethi, who's the Ipsos Vice President of Public Affairs. Their latest poll shows some pretty bleak numbers for Canadians out there. And honestly, you know this already because you know you're having a tough time paying all of those bills out there. More than half of the Canadians they surveyed, so 52%, said they are still concerned they won't have enough money to feed their family. And there's not much of an improvement on that number since they polled people on that question in November. Uh, Women with kids aged age 18 to 34, were among those most likely to feel that way. And also, about half of Canadians also said, you know what, they're not going anywhere this summer. They probably won't be able to afford that. And people are worried about just the you know, basic costs of food, clothing, shelter, that all of that is um, going to get even tighter. This is Mornings with Simi. There's word this morning that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will meet with the premiers to ostensibly, quote, discuss health care on February the 7th. Now, there's much speculation that this will actually be the announcement of the health care deal that we have been hearing about. Hard to believe the prime minister would agree to meet with all the premiers if there wasn't a deal that had been worked out in advance for that. Health care being the hot topic, along with the economy for so many Canadians right now, because you're having trouble accessing it. You're having trouble, you know, getting on that surgical waiting list for a very important, you know, surgery that you need done. You're having trouble maybe just building a relationship with a family doctor because you can't find one. We have talked extensively about the shortage of doctors in this province, the trouble that you have finding one. But here's the thing. Is there actually a shortage of doctors in BC? The reason why we're asking that question actually is because of some research that is done by our next guest, Rosemary Poliak, who's a lawyer and executive director of the Society of Canadians Studying Medicine Abroad. Rosemary, thank you for being here. Well, thank you for putting this issue forward, which is an important one. Yeah, tell me about the work that the society does, first of all. The society represents Canadians who went to study medicine abroad and we um, advocate and provide them information of how the system works. Uh, in a nutshell, um, we the 
people who study medicine abroad are prevented from coming back home to be resident physicians and get their training and become licensed. There's actually barriers at every level, including certification. So there are literally hundreds um, of Canadians who studied abroad and thousands of immigrants who have passed all the Canadian examinations, met the standards, but face intentional barriers that are designed to keep them from becoming licensed. And the reason for that um, is that the since the early 1990s, the fiscal management policy of the provinces has been to control the number of physicians to ration access to public health care so that they can easily and effectively control the health care budget. So what we have done over the last uh, 10 years is research, uh, freedom of information, write letters, do interviews to figure out how the system works and why it works. And I've just encapsulated really the bottom line. There is no shortage of physicians uh, who are qualified. There is a shortage of political will. Okay, so we're talking about two different groups here, though, aren't we, Rosemary? You're talking about uh, Canadians who might have gone abroad to study medicine and also perhaps immigrants who come to Canada who are already doctors. That's correct. But they are international medical graduates and they're treated the same uh, and both groups face the same barriers. And are those barriers consistent like across the country in all the provinces? Largely, yes, although Quebec's different. In but what way? It has, Quebec, in what happens is that in order to get uh, licensed, you have to become, you have to have residency training. You have to be basically a, a doctor apprentice. And in 2006, the provinces of, of Canada devised a system where there would be two streams. Even the, in order to, of access to these positions. And in order to be um, uh, licensed, you have to get through this residency training. And one stream is for graduates of Canadian and American medical school. And it's kind of the golden plated uh, stream. And then Canadians and permanent residents who are uh, graduates from international schools have this poor cousin stream where there are very few uh, residency positions in very limited number of disciplines. And so there are, there's basically a quota on how many international medical graduates who are Canadian citizens and permanent residents can apply for with qualifications being irrelevant. Okay, so what would, in your opinion, then be the best way to use the skills of these doctors? The best way to use the skills of the doctors is to have um, more residency training positions and to have the competition uh, for residency positions it's which is called postgraduate training, which is you not unique to medicine. Many professions have postgraduate training, and to have that based on competence rather than the place from which you graduated. And the reason these streaming exists is to prevent co- uh, superior um, or stronger candidates from displacing weaker graduates of Canadian and American medical schools. And do you That's, see yeah, do you see that happening anywhere? Is there any will to make that happen? Uh, we don't see the will to make it happen, but what we have is a lawsuit to force it to happen. 
Okay, tell me about that. Where is that lawsuit going to be filed? The lawsuit has been filed in uh, our society, the Canadians for Studying Medicine Abroad, filed the lawsuit in 2018, September of 2018. And there's also a lawsuit filed by immigrant physicians uh, in the Human Rights uh, Tribunal. And that one was filed in 2020, I believe, June of 2020. But the, the, the legal system is somewhat slow and we're plodding through it. So what is the holdup here then, Rosemary? Is it about qualification? Is there no standardization of qualifications? Is there, is, do you think this would be a relatively easy process to say, okay, pass this test and you can be a doctor? The, the, the tests ex- exist. The standard is there. It, it, they write the exams. They prove they meet the Canadian standards. But that's not good enough uh, because the, the provinces have set up the system to prevent international medical graduates from becoming licensed. Because the thing that that I find disappointing in terms of public reporting is that the premise of um, the, the doctor shortage is that the fiscal management policy since the early 1990s has been to ensure that the number of physicians is controlled, to ensure that healthcare is rationed. And so the government does, we look at it, we look at need as I need to access a doctor when I'm sick or I need care. But um, the government looks at it as here's the budget, here's what we can afford. And that determines the number of physicians. So with that kind of fiscal management policy, it is inevitable that the healthcare system will at some point collapse. That only makes sense. So if I could give you some specific numbers. Um, in 2021, the year that the most recent uh, year that the uh, college has published, 515 licensed physicians retired or resigned. Nine were suspended for failing to report. So that's a total of 524 um, people who left the practice in British Columbia. Now, the number of people who were trained was a total of 349. And in addition, there were 30 practice residency assessments. So we've got a shortage. We're not only not trying to catch up, we're falling further behind. There is a shortage of 145 um, positions compared to the number we train to the number that left the practice. And that, that gap will grow larger because baby boomers are retiring. Well, Rosemary, you know what? That's so interesting. And we thank you very much for those numbers this morning and appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us. That's Rosemary Pagliak, who's a lawyer and executive director of the Society of Canadians Studying Medicine Abroad. She said there is no doctor shortage provided we allow internationally trained doctors to practice the medicine that they are trained for. Now, would you be okay with that? Would you be okay with the you know, provincial government saying, yes, okay, fine. You pass this test, you can be a doctor here. Should we make it easier? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. You can call or text our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. For a little over a year now, here in the city of Vancouver, there has been a bylaw which was put into place 
to ban the use of plastic shopping bags, but also requiring businesses to charge a fee for disposable cups and for paper bags. It's been controversial. We have talked a lot about it. Uh, you know, lots of debate on this issue. It came up again yesterday because the new Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim was having his first State of the City address where he was talking to business people in the city at the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. And one of the things he said during that speech was that that controversial single-use cup fee will be gone by this summer. That is going to be a commitment that his council is going to make. So what about the councillors who thought this was a good idea? Well, we thought, let's check in with that. Adrian Carr joins us now, Vancouver City Councillor for the Green Party. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Uh, My pleasure, Simi. So what are you thinking about this now, hearing that this is going to be gone? (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, they've got enough votes to make that happen. Um, but can my fellow councillor Pete Fry and myself um, from the Greens uh, actually just discussed this yesterday based on the, the, we were at the, at the mayor's uh, presentation to the Board of Trade. Um, and uh, in talking about it, uh, uh, you know, we agree uh, that it's not working to do what it was intended to do. That 25 cents a cup fee that was being collected by businesses that were selling coffee, etc., um, was supposed to have been used by the uh, by the the coffee shops, uh, etc., to actually invest in shareware or um, to uh, in, in permanent uh, mugs that that people would use at their tables. And we really haven't seen that happen. I mean, we still have an immense problem with throwaway cups here. You know, when the biggest single item that we see in uh, litter. And uh, and it's an amazingly huge amount still. Um, so I, I think this, the, the, the system we thought might work hasn't worked and we should be trying something different. Okay, and what do you think that something different might look like? Well, do you see very many pot cans or beer cans along the sides of roads or in the, around, surrounding the trash cans and overspilling out of them? No. And the reason is we have in the province of BC something called extended producer responsibility, um, which means that the producers uh, um, have to pay into actually uh, making sure that people can recycle those. Um, there's a five, uh, you know, there's a, a five cent deposit. You get it. Um, back, or if you take those into a recycling depot, there has to be space in recycling depots that return at depots in order to take those. That's part of what extended producer responsibility is, making sure um, that there's payment to spa- there's a space for people to return things. And, um, and so, the, so the actual litter has gone down. down. Binners pick them up mostly, and uh, or people just you know collecting them and getting getting some extra cash for doing it. Uh, when they return them. So uh, it's got to be something like that. Um, I wish that we did have like, not the production in the first place and we did have more reusable and, um, and, and permanent um, containers um, that, uh, that would take out our coffee in uh, that people would use, just like most of us now carry around shopping bags instead of we don't pay the, the fee for, our, for the paper bag at the store. Almost everyone I see actually has a shopping bag. So right. Maybe we'd all carry around our own cup. Right, but I guess the idea was to try to impact people's behavior, right? It wasn't about the money collected or anything like that. It was about changing behavior. And so do you think in that regard, did it succeed at all? No, that's a, it, that is the prime question, Simi. And a, no, I don't think it has because we've seen just as much waste. Just, I mean, I, you know, I, I live in the West End. You go down the, you know, the beaches, uh, to the beaches, there's, there's garbage cans and you see people. The big thing is paper cups, you know, that, sorry, and cigarette butts. Uh, but paper cups is the biggest source of litter. So, um, or plastic cups. So, nope, it hasn't changed behavior, at least not 
to any significant extent. Um, so I would agree with uh, a statement made by Marison yesterday at the Board of Trade and his uh, State of the City address that it's uh, time to do something different. All right. And, and so you, yeah, we hopefully that would they want to work towards something different? Well, I would. I, that's what that I'm going to encourage. Um, that this is not just about um, saying, "Okay, we're taking the fee off." It's about actually pressuring the provincial government through its program for extended producer responsibility to actually develop a program for those paper cups and plastic cups, just like they did for beer cans and uh, and water bottles. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Yeah, no pleasure. I mean, it's my pleasure. No problem. <laughs> Appreciate that. That's Adrian Carr, Vancouver City Councillor, talking about the, the bylaw that sounds like it's going to be rescinded by summer, getting rid of the, uh, you know, the cup fee and the paper bag fee. And we'll see what, hum- what comes next on that. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, we're going to talk about daycares. It is really hard for parents out there to find a daycare. And I think often what people do is they, you know, put their names on waiting lists wherever they can uh, in the hopes that a spot will open up somewhere. But a BC mom has been speaking out, actually, about a very common problem that faces a lot of parents who do that. And that is each one of those daycares might just charge you a fee, a non-refundable deposit to be on their wait list. It's pretty common practice, apparently. Uh, And then guess what? You don't get that money back when you do eventually get into perhaps a different daycare. So what is the deal with this? Is this a problem out there? Well, joining us now is Emily Gullick, who's the Executive Director of Early Childhood Educators of BC. Emily, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me this morning. How common is this practice? Well, I think... um I'm not really sure how common it is, like across the province itself, but it is, you know, there there are quite a few that uh, do do that. They have a waitlist fee. Okay, and so can it be sizable? Like, what what kind of range do you think we're talking about here? Well, what I've heard it uh, could start from about twenty dollars all the way up to two hundred um, is what I've been hearing. Yeah. That's expensive because normally, I guess, Emily, people do have to put themselves on multiple waiting lists, don't they? Exactly. So we hear of some families, you know, 30, 40, even 60 wait lists uh, once they know they're even pregnant just to get into a, just in the hopes to get in onto a, into a child care program. Wow. Why do you think daycares would charge this? What are you hearing from people on that? Well, I think there's actually probably two reasons. One, firstly, is, you know, there is some operation cost to maintain large wait lists, especially if you're a larger program. And it's not like a school system where you know your child's five and you want to register them into a school. Um, there's people there that are paid to do that, to manage those those registrations. And there isn't the same thing that happens within um, individual child care centres. And that's why we've been promoting a new system to actually have a system of child care with the 10-a-day plan moving forward that would really support that. I think also the second reason that some child care programs do it is actually um, increases the profit margin for them and for their investors. Right. Uh, you talked about the system. Um, is that coming? I know we've we've heard about that from the province before, like some kind of centralized wait list. Well, that's what we think. It's part of the bigger system as government moves forward, both our 
province and and the federal government moves forward to build a childcare system like other um, public good systems that are out there, that that would be part of what they hope to develop, or that's what we're hoping to see, that this this extra financial burden isn't put on to families. Like I can't even imagine being a family that's on, on, on a parental leave, having to pay, you know, that kind of money, even at $20 a person, if you're trying or a program and you're trying to, to secure a spot in, you know, 30 different places, just hoping to get in. Like I can't imagine what uh, pressure that puts on families already under pressure. And what about, we've also been hearing about how some daycares are now charging kind of extra fees for things that they didn't charge for before. Do you think we perhaps just need to set down some rules on this on what can be charged for and what can't be charged for? Absolutely. I think childcare programs, as we move forward to reduce fees for families and increase operating costs for those childcare programs, they do need to be accountable for that money that they're receiving to reduce those fees and, and what that looks like. And from my understanding, there is a lot of um, measures in place. I'll be re- it will be really interesting to see how government responds to childcare programs and that then increase their fees after they receive that additional funds. Right. Or perhaps add on additional fees, right? Like charge for things that they weren't charging for before. Exactly. Exactly. Are you hearing about that happening as well? Yes, we have heard that. Um, not not very often, but we have been hearing about that. So like I said, it'd be real. I really believe that, um, even even our ideas within the 10-a-day plan, there is accountability for those operators to receive those funds, and we believe that's the way to go. Is there any progress being made on that front, Emily, that you know of? Like, is the government looking at this? Well, I know that they're aware, and they've been... And there's, there's, they are looking at it. So, like I said, I'll be interested to see how it does play out and, and how those accountabilities that they've already um, included in those contracts for, for the funds that those operators are, are receiving play out. I think that that will be the next step. And we see how, how this all plays out over the next little while. Any advice for parents out there then, Emily, who are kind of trying to still find that daycare and maybe they do have to utilize these waiting lists? Well, you know, it it really, it, like I think what this parent has done is brought the issue to the table. And what I would recommend is that they continue to bring those issues to their local MPs, their local MLAs, and um, keep keep taking this to those decision makers and to say this is a real issue for us as as families as our children are are trying to access these different programs and I think that's the number one piece like it's just a good place to continually bring the pressures that families are facing to find really high quality childcare within their communities and and the government needs to really listen to these families that are struggling with this whole process All right, Emily, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. That's Emily Gallick, who's the Executive Director of Early Childhood Educators of BC. Now, the waiting list situation, having to pay a non-refundable deposit on that, that is a little bit different from the other situation we've heard about with some of these daycare centers now charging parents 
for things that used to be included in their payment. But now that they're getting the government subsidy, now they're charging parents additionally for things like, oh, you want to access the camera to watch your child at daycare? Well, now we're going to charge you $150 a month, whereas before they didn't have that charge. So that the ministry has been very clear. The government has been clear in saying you can't do that. You can't charge for things that previously were included. But these cases do keep cropping up. The waitlist situation, though, is different. As, as Emily was pointing out, though, maintaining the waitlist, like, and the fees are different. And so, you know, different daycares, different fees just to be on that waiting list. That's also a bit of a barrier for people, too. If you've had that happen to you, let me hear from you. Simi at cknw.com. You can also call or text our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. That person sounds like they've been drinking, right, when they sing that song. But it is possible to have beer and actually not get drunk. And that is because there is a whole new class of non-alcoholic or de-alcoholized beer out there, including craft beer. And I've been seeing this more and more, particularly on the shelves at my grocery store. And I've always wondered, like, how do you do it? Like, how do you make a product like that but without the alcohol? It must involve a whole lot of chemistry, right? Well, some brewers out there, they believe they have actually cracked the code. Joining us now to talk about that is Mitch Cobb. Now, Mitch is the CEO of Upstreet Craft Brewing in Charlottetown. Mitch, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Simi. Thanks for having me. Now, you have been working on this, right? Like, why did you decide that maybe you needed to create some kind of non-alcoholic beverage? Yeah, you know, I mean, it all really started when we started Upstreet in 2015. And, and after a couple of years of, of being in the beer business, you know, it was really starting to take a, a toll on my health. Um, you know, I had gained some weight and I wasn't feeling really on top of my mental and, and physical well-being. So, you know, I, I decided that I wanted to reduce my alcohol consumption. And But, you know, still wanted to go out and do the things that I typically did, go out with friends and stuff, and didn't feel... Like I wanted to drink water every time. So we started to look at what it would take to create our own non-alcoholic craft beer. Okay, this sounds like it would be very difficult to do. What were some of the challenges? Well, you know, traditionally um, non-alcoholic beer is made by, you know, making the beer and then, and then boiling the alcohol off of the beer. And when you do that, you lose a lot of the flavor as well. Um, you know, and so we looked at a number of different methods for making non-alcoholic beer, uh, vacuum distillation, reverse osmosis, but ultimately we ended up kind of developing our own method where we brew it the same way that we brew our traditional beer. We just make small changes along the way so that the beer only ends up fermenting out to 0.4% alcohol. Now, did you have to figure this out through trial and error? Or is there some kind of guidebook on this? No, there was no guidebook at the time. So we started in, in 2018 and, and really it took us two years of uh, research and development to, uh, to figure it out. So we launched our first product, the Libra Pale Ale, in uh, October of 2020. And how has it been? Uh, I mean, it's been great. The reception has been phenomenal. And since then, we've launched, uh, I guess, five flagship beers. Uh, so we have the Pale Ale, an IPA, we have a Pilsner. Uh, we have a stout and we have a sour, and we've done a couple of seasonals as well. Okay, and these uh, are without alcohol? They're all without alcohol, yep. And what's the feedback that you get from people, Mitch? You know, the feedback is is incredible, you know, and we get a lot of people who, you know, at first are like, nah, I don't drink non-alcoholic beer or like, I don't like it, you know, and, and you you get them to try it and they're shocked. Uh, you know, they can't believe that it tastes so good and that it tastes just like the real thing. And then 
you can start to see the wheels start to turn in their heads as they think about like all of the occasions where you know non-alcoholic beer would be perfect whether it's you know going to the beach on a sunny day or going golfing or you know having a beer after work when you, you want to go to the gym or you need to get up the next day so I, I'm curious about the process for this then. Is the process like as complicated as making actual beer? Because I know that with beer, it's, there's so much chemistry involved, right? And there's so much biology and you have to be, be so careful about making sure everything is clean or the batch will be ruined. Like, is it all the same for non-alcoholic beer? Yeah, it is absolutely the same. Yep. Wow, that is so interesting. So are you, is, is this something that you're hearing that other breweries are doing too? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely uh, a growing trend. You know, I mean, I would say at this stage, you know, it's even more of a trend. It's more of a movement. Um, you know, there's certainly lots of uh, craft breweries who are launching their own non-alcoholic beers. You know, there are some, uh, you know, food safety issues with, uh, with non-alcoholic beer because it doesn't have the alcohol in it, uh, you know, so there's a, a bit more risk. So, you know, you definitely have to have... Uh, really stringent processes and, and food safety certifications in place to uh, to be able to do it properly. But uh, it's definitely something that uh, people are jumping on. How close would you say the taste is? Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's interesting, actually. I was talking to uh, uh, someone yesterday, and they said that they had given their uh, father one of our stouts, and uh, our non-alcoholic stouts, and he drank the whole thing and didn't realize that there was no alcohol oh, that, in it. So that's ideal, you know, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly what we're looking for. We're not trying to be a good uh, non-alcoholic beer. We're trying to be a great craft beer. What I also find fascinating about this, Mitch, is that it really, I think, forces people to ask the question about why you're drinking, right? Are you drinking because you love the taste, or are you drinking because you really want the buzz? Absolutely. And, you know, we've seen a real shift over the last couple of years where, you know, there was a real sort of line in the sand, you know, and either you drank or you didn't. And if you didn't, it was because, you know, you had health concerns or, you know, you, you couldn't consume alcohol. And there's been a real shift to more of moderation, you know, and people are realizing that it's more about the social experience and, and the ritual that they're interested in, not necessarily the alcohol. So, you know, we see people come into our tap room all the time and, and maybe they'll have a beer and then they'll have a couple of Libras because they're not ready to leave yet. But, you know, they need to go and do things and they don't want to drink three beer and not be able to drive. So, you know, there's been a real sort of shift. And I think people are really starting to look at the relationship with alcohol and, and recognize that, you know, it's it probably isn't good for them and, and they want to really focus on their health and wellness. And so do you, do you think this is a growth business then? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've seen non-alcoholic beer for the last number of years grow 30% per year. And I think, you know, as more um, either craft breweries or, or businesses start to produce non-alcoholic beers, it's just, you know, there's a lot of innovation happening in the space and, and with innovation comes more options for consumers and it, it gives people more opportunity to consume more non-alcoholic beverages. Did you say that it's grown 30% per year? Yeah. Yep. Wow. Yep. Hard well, to find a product that's grown that much. Totally. Yeah, it's definitely a booming uh, sector. So what do you think the key here is, then, Mitch? Is it presenting it um, just like like it's just another beer, like keeping it on the same level as beer so that people don't think it's like something so different? Yeah, and that's really what we've tried to do. You know, we've tried to create a really great brand and a really great product that, you know, people are excited to share and they're excited to talk about. You know, for the longest time, if you were going to a party or you were going out and you were choosing not to drink, 
you know, you would try and have a, a club soda and, you know, put a lime in it and dress it up so that people wouldn't recognize that you weren't drinking so that you wouldn't get asked, oh, how come you're not drinking tonight? You know, or you would pour your non-alcoholic beer into a glass so that people wouldn't see the can. And really, you know, what we're trying to do is, is create a product that people are really proud to bring out with them and they're, they're interested in it and they want to share it and they want to talk about it with their friends. And so by doing that, it really allows those people who are choosing not to drink to be included in that social experience and, and ritual that they're used to. Well, that is so cool. I see you're winning awards for this too. So Mitch, thanks so much for talking to us about it this morning. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. That's Mitch Cobb. Mitch is the CEO of Upstreet Craft Brewing in Charlottetown over in PEI. But they are doing something quite unique, and that is they decided as a craft brewery to make non-alcoholic craft beers, and that is what they have done, which they sell alongside their beers that have alcohol in them. And they said it's it's a choice that lots of people are making, and people can still go out, enjoy themselves, uh, and they can have a great time and probably not even tell the difference. I think it's amazing.